最前沿的科学研究。Welcome to Science Rehashed, the podcast where we offer a window into life science research to anyone in the world with an internet connection. I'm Layla, and I'm Mehdi, and we're your Science Rehashed co-hosts. Any researcher knows how long it can take to carry out a study from start to finish. Our guest today, Dr. Alberto Ascario, is no stranger to this concept. In our interview, he tells us about his recent findings, which were the incredible combination of data from over 20 years of research. Dr. Ascario is a professor of epidemiology and nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. His research focuses on finding causes of diseases like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. He and his group are undertaking large long-term projects to identify pre-diagnostic markers of infection and how they relate to the progression of neurodegenerative diseases like multiple sclerosis or MS. Today, we're talking to Dr. Escario about his publication, which found a causal link between Epstein-Barr virus or EBV and MS. We'd like to thank Untapped Resources for sponsoring Science Rehashed. Untapped Resources is a Boston-based foundation that funds the arts, sciences, education, and creative initiatives of people working to improve lives, celebrate community, and solve local problems. With support from the Untapped Resources grant program, we are committed to making science more inclusive and accessible for scientists and the science curious worldwide. Welcome to Science Rehash, Dr. Escario. We normally start with a brief introduction. If you could please tell our listeners a little bit about your background. I'm Alberto Escario. I'm a professor of epidemiology at the Harvard THM School of Public Health. I've been at Harvard for 30 years doing research on the epidemiology of neurodegenerative diseases and.、Uh, Before that, you know, I practiced medicine for a few years in mostly in the developing world in in Africa and Nicaragua. So now my focus is on multiple sclerosis, Parkinson, and ALS. And I understand what we will be discussing today is our work on on MS that started over 20 years ago and、uh, is finally coming to you know have an impact on、uh, the prevention and treatment of the disease. Thank you very much for that intro. You just said you were practicing medicine before you started working on neurodegenerative diseases. Before we get into the fascinating research that you are here to talk about, can you tell us how you made that transition from medicine to research? Well, it was、uh, it was not intentional in the beginning. I really loved、uh, to do clinical medicine, and you know, you you feel useful on a short term. I think that is the big difference <laughs> with doing research that you don't see any consistent result for many years. I just came to Harvard to get a master in epidemiology, and I remain a bit fascinated by the possibility. Of research and prevention, so I slowly abandoned the idea of pursuing the more the, the clinical track and、uh, 
and at some point you realize that I, I know some of you can manage both, but uh, I think it is hard to be, you know, a good clinician, a good researcher. So at some point I just focus on research. Wonderful. So to set the stage to go and talk about the research that is an amazing research that has been published recently in on MS, uh, often a question might be asked by a lot of people listening to our podcast is what the difference between different neurodegenerative diseases, including MS, PD, ALS, and what make MS different from those diseases? Yeah, MS is, uh, is quite different, obviously, for the epidemiology to begin with. It is a disease uh, of, of young adults, and they start with uh, this, in most cases, with this relapsing remitting course that is a strong inflammatory component compared to other diseases like Parkinson, Alzheimer, and ALS that at least apparently they seem to have a slow and steady progression in, uh, with initiation in, uh, in older adults. So I think MS really stands out. We call it a neurodegenerative disease because there is a neurodegenerative component that is probably present in a subtle way from the beginning, uh, even if it is hidden in some way by the relapses. But it does steadily continue. And uh, in spite of the treatment, the treatment uh, are very effective these days to suppress the relapses and inflammation. But uh, there is still, you know, slow progression that in the end results in significant disability. You mentioned relapsing remitting MS, where periods of symptoms are followed by periods of partial or even complete remission. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how relapsing remitting MS is different from primary progressive MS? I usually prefer to talk about two types. So it's really relapsing remitting onset or primary uh, progressive MS. In, because primary progressive is so much less common, it's less than 10% of the cases, really uh, virtually all the data are influenced by the relapsing remitting onset. So the question of whether uh, progressive MS has the same etiology, and uh, I think most likely and most experts would agree, yes, but uh, we know much less about primary progressive multiple sclerosis. The big difference is early in the disease course. So relapsing remitting are these, uh, you know, before the ocrelizumab and other very effective treatments were available, you know, people could have one, two, or even more relapses every year with acute neurological symptoms that could be very disabling and then resolves. Whereas the primary progress would be slow accumulation of, the, of disability over time in, without any detectable relapse. Now, I have to say that, that there are forms in between. So there are cases of relapsing, remitting, that you have a relapse and then you don't recover completely from, from the relapse. So you have residual disability that uh, can accumulate. So the distinction is not uh, black and white. I see. And what is the typical age of onset and time course of this disease? Yeah, the peak age of onset is around the age of 30. So the disease is very rare before 18. Uh, you know, there are rare pediatric cases. Uh, it starts rising slowly at 18 and they then uh, pick up in the mid-20s and reach a peak between, around 30, between 30, 35. Um, by the age of 50, the incidence is already lower and then it declines steadily uh, with age. 
but it's lifelong disease. Now, this day, the survival is very high. So you live, if you have a mace, you live with a mace for 30, 40 years. And since the disease starts in the middle of life, when people are starting to have a family, in case of women having children, so the, the, the impact is, uh, is significant for this reason. Primary progressive MS tend to have a later age at onset uh, and less of a gender difference. Relapsing remitting MS is... Uh, three to one, uh, almost more common in women than in, than in men. So the, that gender gradient is attenuated in primary progressive MS so that is, is, and they start at a later age. The initial symptoms are really extremely variable because as you know, MS is caused by this uh, attack of demyelination in different parts of the nervous system. So depending on where the lesion occurs, you, you can have sensory symptoms, motor symptoms, autonomic symptoms. So I think that that is one of the disturbing features of MS, that you don't know what to expect, and virtually any part of the, of the nervous system can be affected. In the long run, I think um, motor symptoms become important uh, with difficulty to, in the ambulation and, uh, and, and not rarely in, in uh, older people end up in a wheelchair or with difficulty walking. I see. That's probably... As you mentioned, a, a scarier, disturbing part of MS for the patients and the people who develop it, right? Because, you know, they have no idea what's going on. I should say there are people who will be listening that there are many benign uh, cases. So, and, and again, it's a slow progression. So it's not that uh, someone has a diagnosis of MS should panic what is going to happen. And with current treatment, you know, the quality of life can be reasonably good. Hi, listeners. If you're enjoying Science Rehashed, let us know by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate our show on Spotify by tapping the three dots next to the following button and then tapping Rate Show. This is also a great time to hit follow if you're not following already. I'm looking to the paper right now. It's in front of my screen and it's mind-blowing. Two decades 62 million serum samples, 10 million individual, and around 1,000 people of MS patients. Please walk us through this paper. And let's start by talking about the population. You know, this is a unique facility in the world. You know, an important step in epidemiology. You have an idea, you think, you know, an hypothesis, you want to, to test the hypothesis. You have to find the right population. So this was 20 years ago. And so and we, we discovered this resource that was not created for research purposes in the beginning. So the serum repository of the Department of Defense uh, archives samples that were using for HIV testing in active duty military personnel. So every two years, uh, approximately, each individual in active duty is tested for HIV. And they had the, you know, the fantastic idea of keeping the leftover serum sample for any, you know, potential use that uh, that could occur. And uh, so since 1993, this, uh, when it was created, that is the accumulation of over 60 million samples. And the, the 10 million people are different cohorts of young men and women who served for different periods of time in, uh, in, in active duty. And multiple sclerosis recognizes a service-related condition in uh, the U.S. military. So when a young, you know, recruit uh, start developing neurological symptoms, they usually go through a very rigorous and thorough neurological examination, MRI and everything else to establish a diagnosis. So 
we were able to access this uh, this information, the medical record, to determine, you know, by research criteria, which individual developed multiple sclerosis and, and link them, you know, to the serum sample that had been collected. That is absolutely fascinating. So with this rich database of samples, you were able to look for a causal relationship between people who are infected with Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV, and people who develop multiple sclerosis. Now, what exactly were you able to find? So the previous studies I mentioned that found a, a low uh, prevalence of EBV in individuals with MA said that, you know, major limitation. They recruited people who already had MS and sometimes for decades. So they couldn't distinguish whether the EBV was causing MS or whether MS, you know, which is a disease of the immune system and would make it more likely to become infected with EBV. So the novelty of the study is that we start with people who are not infected with the Epstein-Barr virus. We follow them over time with repeated blood sample and in, in, uh, clinical uh, surveillance. And what we demonstrated that there is virtually no multiple sclerosis onset before you are infected with the Epstein-Barr virus. So once you're infected, EBV is a one-time infection. So you're, you can distinguish your life in two periods, before EBV infection and after. Once you've got the virus, the virus infects your B cells and persists in B cells for the rest of your life. So what we have seen is that in those individuals in the period before EBV infection, there is virtually no MS. After EBV infection, the risk of MS jumps up by over 30-fold. And how did you think about EBV? Like why, why investigate EBV as a, to have a role in multiple sclerosis? So the hypothesis is actually dates back to the, at least the 1980s, right? So... The Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, infects virtually everyone. So if you're infected in early childhood, the infection tends to be asymptomatic. If you escape infection in early childhood, they're infected during your teenage or, or adult life, um, you have high probability of developing infectious mononucleosis. You know, about 40-50% of individuals who are infected uh, after childhood uh, develop symptoms of mono, you know, for sure. And the epidemiology of mono has a lot of similarities with the epidemiology of MS. So they're both rare in uh, tropical and developing countries. They tend to be rare in, in Asia. In spite of a you know, latitude gradient that MS is more common at higher latitude, but then they, both mono and uh, MS are rare in Eskimo. So someone notice all these similarities and say, well, maybe there is a link between the, the two diseases. So that was the very early you know, suggestion. This was 1918, I think it was the letter to the Lancet. So an explanation that was proposed is the so-called hygiene hypothesis. Because it, it only occurs if you escape EBV infection in childhood, you know, it tends to be common in countries like, uh, you know, more industrialized and uh, higher income nations where the children are not all, uh, you know, crowded together in a, <laughs> you know, and sharing saliva and, and, and microbes uh, when they are, in, uh, you know, playing in the dirt in uh, early life. So this, there was this idea, maybe industrialization has an adverse effect. These children are protected from infection in, in early life, and this primes their immune system toward more inflammatory responses. 
So if you are not exposed to all these microbes and, uh, and parasites, uh, then your immune system uh, seems to be you know, more prone to autoimmunity. This was the prevailing hypothesis. So the idea was that this hygiene is a common cause, you know, that cause mononucleosis by delaying the age of infection of EBV and causes MS by priming the immune system uh, toward the inflammation and autoimmunity. Now, the problem, and then we noticed this uh, was uh, over 20 years ago, that that hypothesis would predict that individuals who are EBV negative, right, those individuals who escape uh, EBV infection in childhood, they should have high risk of MS, whether or not, you know, they get infected with EBV. So whether or not they get mono, because they have a high hygiene background, they should have a high risk of MS. But the studies available at the time, you know, were sort of a collection of small uh, case control uh, retrospective studies. They seem to suggest that individuals who were EBV negative had a very low risk of MS. So there was this paradox, and that is what started our, uh, our investigation. Oh, very interesting. And you actually mentioned something that I had a follow-up question about. I'm wondering how you can run a study even at this magnitude to find causality when so many people are infected with EBV. I'd love to hear about that. Yes, yeah, that's why we needed a huge population, right? So uh, at the time of recruitment in the military, about uh, 6% of the individuals were EBV negative. So, but 6% of uh, 10 million <laughs> of million of people is still a very large number. That explains why it took uh, 20 years. And now it's a common question is, uh, how can it be that EBV infects virtually everyone and only causes an MS in one, uh, you know, in 200 people? And, um, you know, I think that, that is a common situation for many viral diseases. I give the example usually of poliomyelitis. Before the vaccine became available, the poliovirus used to infect virtually all the children, even in the United States and in the world. But only one in 400 children would develop paralytic poliomyelitis. And why that one child and not the other 399, we could never figure it out what prevented the disease. And that is more the rule than the exception. You know, another example, human papilloma virus and cervical cancer. So many women are infected, but most will not develop uh, cancer. So EBV is no exception. So the majority of people, these are viruses that co-evolved with humans for thousands of years. So we, you know, we found some balance and compromise, and most of us will not be affected by the virus. This is all very fascinating, and I have a couple of follow-up questions for this. How were you able to tell when exactly MS onset happens if the symptoms appear gradually? And how did you know that it is EBV and not some other viruses that causing MS? Because MS, the diagnosis of MS can be delayed. It doesn't represent the clinical symptoms do not represent the initiation of the pathological process. We use a serum neurofilament as a marker, uh, a sensitive marker of neurodegeneration. So if something happens in your brain and neurons start to die or axon to be you know, affected, that you get an elevation of serum NFL. And what we demonstrated that uh, the serum NFL level are flat or normal uh, until after EBV infection. It's only after EBV infection that you see an elevation in NFL and later you see the onset of MS symptoms. 
And all this was done using a cytomegalovirus, which is a virus was transmitted in a similar manner to EBV as a sort of a negative control. So CMV is very similar in many aspects to EBV. So we could see that the CMV infection in the same population was not associated with an FL increase and was not associated with an increased risk of MS. And finally, we did a screening for all uh, for antibody against all the known human viruses to see if there was a, you know, sort of a generalized uh, dysregulation of immunity or whether the finds were specific for EBV. And we found that all the peptides that gave a stronger immune response in MS cases as compared to control, they were all EBV peptides. So basically suggesting that other virus don't really play a, a major role. You also mentioned that women are three times more likely than men to be diagnosed with MS, specifically relapsing remitting MS. Do we know anything about why these gender disparity exist at the first place? That's a really a fascinating question. You know, one of the reasons this is fascinating is that this gender difference has been changing over time. So if you go back to the early data, uh, in the very early data, even for relapsing remitting MS, the incidence was similar in, uh, in, in men and women, or at least slightly higher in men and women. So the ratio from women to men was, you know, at some point 1.5, and now it's, it became closer to 3. It's an unsolved mystery. So for those listeners who like to solve mystery, please <laughs> go ahead and let me know if you have any, any suggestion. You know, of course, there are a lot of speculation. Uh, obviously, you can think about hormones, but, you know, I would be lying if I, you know, I can make you several stories, but none of these stories really proven in a, you know, in a, in a reasonable way. So we don't, the bottom line is that we don't know. Well, we'll definitely be sure to direct any listeners your way if they have any ideas. Hi, listeners. I hope you are enjoying our episodes. If you want to tell us your thoughts, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review to let us know what you think about Science Rehashed. If you also want to ask questions during our next episodes, don't forget to post them on Twitter at Science Rehashed on one of our next interview tweets. I'm also curious if there are any other risk factors for MS besides EBV. There is genetic susceptibility that increases the risk about threefold. You know, if you have the HLA-DR15 allele, that is the most important risk factor. Vitamin D deficiency, which we demonstrated in the same military population, we see the lowest risk actually in people who are close to 100 nanomol per liter, using the international unit, which corresponds to 40 you know, nanogram. In, in other populations where the vitamin D level are much lower, like in Finland, we did the study, then you see that you know having 50 uh, nanomol is already half the risk than being below 30 nanomoles, which is a, you know, a deficiency level. This is a population that with low vitamin D. So wherever you look, there is a gradient. The higher, the better. But uh, take the opportunity in case anyone is listening, there is no indication for megadoses of vitamin D because someone ended up proposing megadoses, which are dangerous, and there is no evidence that they are beneficial. But maintaining good level of vitamin D 
in this, as we speak, is probably the best way to reduce your risk of MS, given that you, we cannot yet prevent TBV infection. Speaking of diagnosis, at one point you mentioned this is not your area of expertise. I, I respect that. But also you mentioned early diagnosis is lacking. So if, if very briefly, if you, can, if you can walk us through where we are with the diagnosis of MS and how efficient is it? The diagnostic criteria have been changing over time. The classical criteria, you know, were developed by Poser here at Harvard. So the key point was dissemination in space and time, meaning to diagnose MS, you had evidence of two different areas of the nervous system being affected and at different time, meaning at least two separate episodes of clinical relapse separated in time. Now, with the MRI, it became clear that some of this uh, lesion in the brain can be asymptomatic. So the clinical criteria being gradually being replaced by integrated clinical and MRI criteria, so in which you can, uh, basically, the time criteria can be inferred by the nature of the lesion that you see on MRI. So you can see an older lesion and the new lesion, and that provides the evidence of dissemination in time. So I think in the past, there was what was called a clinical isolated syndrome. That means, you know, an episode of demyelination that didn't quite meet the criteria to be diagnosed for MS because of uh, not sufficient evidence of dissemination in, in space and time. And this category has been shrinking and shrinking over time in that uh, now many of the cases that in the past were considered a clinical isolated syndrome, now they have diagnosed MS. So... Now the diagnosis of MS can be done uh, faster and there is this uh, idea that time is brain so that uh, it's better to diagnose early and to treat early before having uh, you know, further, further relapses. So I think substantial progress has been made, but there is evidence uh, from multiple studies that even before the diagnosis, individual will develop MS you know, often have a history. You can see from their, for example, in these large databases, from their, you know, prescription pattern and pattern of visit, that the, there is a higher frequency of seeing the doctor with a variety of symptoms in people who later develop MS. We obviously suggest that some of these individuals, something was already happening before they came to medical attention. Talking about EBV, so there seems to be a lot of these different links that people have discovered, including yourself, between EBV and MS. And we know that EBV can also cause infectious mononucleosis as a viral syndrome. Does EBV have any other associations or, or symptoms or effects, like associations with any other types of disease? Yes, you know, thanks for asking that question. So EBV, in fact, was the first, I believe, uh, oncogenic, human oncogenic virus that has been recognized. So it's, it's, it's actually fascinating the epidemiology because EBV can cause nasopharyngeal carcinoma in Southeast Asia. It causes Burkitt lymphoma in uh, equatorial Africa. It causes a proportion of cases of Hodgkin lymphoma in, uh, you know, mostly in the U.S., uh, in Europe, uh, some cases of gastric cancer have been uh, uh, linked to. So it's an oncogenic virus that can cause uh, neoplastic transformation, mostly in uh, B cells in the case of the lymphoma or in epithelial cells in the case of nasopharyngeal carcinoma. So absolutely interesting. In fact, most of the research of EB on EBV until now has been uh, in the field of oncology, trying to 
to find a way to prevent and treat this uh, EBV-caused tumor. Oh, very interesting. And so seeing as how EBV is linked now to uh, many different conditions, I'm wondering why there has been little push, if any, for an EBV vaccine. Is it being considered as a major, major health issue or how is it being dealt with? There has been some work on vaccine. Now, all these diseases uh, are relatively rare, right? And localized to specific area of the world. So Burkitt lymphoma, you know, it's a thousand cases in Africa. And esopharyngeal carcinoma is common in some region of Southeast Asia. So that may explain uh, in part uh, the reason. And also... It is challenging because in many of these countries, most children are infected in early childhood. So a vaccine is a possibility, but it is not, you know, was not an easy. And also before, now because the RNA technology has really opened the door to a faster and cheaper <laughs> vaccine development. Before that, uh, you know, I understand, uh, you know, this is not my area, but the investment needed to develop a new vaccine uh, would be many, many hundred millions of dollars. So it would be a huge capital to be invested in the beginning with many years of delay, return, and a lot of uncertainty. So probably <laughs> economically it didn't quite fit. I think the situation has changed now. And uh, as you probably know, Moderna is an EBV vaccine that is uh, you know, under trial. I just wanted to touch on the current treatments for MS and the implications that this link between EBV and MS has for potential new targets for MS treatment and maybe even prevention methods. The most effective treatment are anti-CD20 antibodies. These antibodies deplete the B cells, which are the site of persistence of EBV. So I think it's quite likely that the effect of anti-CD20 is due to the fact that you deplete the virus. So we are basically already, you know, unintentionally targeting EBV because anti-CD20, we have not developed it with EBV in mind. We are developing it independently. So, but obviously the B cells are an important part of the immune system and for protection against other infections. The question is, can we target the virus more specifically? So, and there you have different routes, you know, uh, one is the direct antiviral drugs, and that is a, an area of research. We don't have a good anti-EBV drug at this time, but there is, uh, you know, promising hints that some drug could be useful. A second area would be using cytotoxicity cell, and there is a trial going on in California of EBV-specific cytotoxicity cell that are being administered to patient to see if this can uh, suppress uh, EBV. And then uh, maybe a third possibility would be to target the EBV-infected uh, B lymphocytes uh, more directly. That is, instead of depleting all the B cells, is there a way to identify and find target the EBV-infected B cells, or particularly this protein EBNA1, that is EBV protein that the virus require any time that the cell uh, duplicates to make sure that the viral DNA will also replicate and infect both the daughter cells. You know, the EBNA1 is the critical protein needed today. So there is an area of research on EBNA1 inhibitors. Wonderful. And 
One question regarding this incredible sets of samples that you have access to. Are there any other questions that you hope to answer with the same samples? We have been funded to look at uh, ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and to explore a possible uh, role of infection and other biomarker for ALS. And we are hoping to extend, uh, well, let me mention this. So ideally, to take full advantage of this resource, it would be important to diagnose cases of neurodegenerative diseases occurring after people retire from the army, from the, in the military, because Many people retire from the military at a relatively young age. So cases of ALS and Alzheimer's are often diagnosed after retirement. So we have been uh, you know, corresponding and working with the VA, the Veteran Administration, for a long time. And we are trying to establish a link between data from the Veteran Administration and the Department of Defense Serum Repository. That would open up a huge possibility to look at the early phases of Alzheimer's and Parkinson and ALS. So I hope we will succeed. Besides these resources and looking into other neurodegenerative diseases, as you mentioned, ALS and the devastating Alzheimer's disease, what is next in your line of research? One important question we want to address on MS using this data is, can we predict you know, which individuals infected with EBV will develop MS based on the profile of the immune response? So what we are planning to do is to use this sample to look more deeply, not only at an antibodies against viruses, but also on the full spectrum of uh, antibody against host protein and CNS protein to see if we can identify an early signature that will allow to predict who will get MS and who will not get MS. That would be you know, an important result. We are also collaborating with a clinical investigator to explore the possibility of antivirals, drugs effective against EBV in MS. And we have collaboration with laboratory scientists trying to understand the mechanism by which EBV causes MS. Mandy, you had a fun question. Funny question. <laughs> yeah, enough research questions and MS. Uh, what do you do for fun? Well, I'm an outdoor person. So in the summer, I like to do triathlons, you know, the thing they swim, bike, and, uh, and run. So that's, uh, but uh, recently I got you know, inspired. I've seen people doing kite surfing, which, uh, uh, oh my. Uh, so I, I took just two lessons, but uh, <laughs> I hope to, <laughs> to be able to. It's like flying, I think. <laughs> Are you left with more thoughts or questions after listening to a Science Rehash episode? Join us on Twitter at Science Rehashed and leave your comments, thoughts, questions, etc. on the episode Twitter thread to rehash this episode using hashtag SREpisodeRehash. Wow, what an absolutely incredible body of work. It must be so satisfying to see such a long-running study finally come to fruition. And it sounds like this database will open up many, many more avenues to investigate in the future. That's very true. I'm still amazed at how 20 years, 62 million samples, and 10 million study participants led to this incredible discovery. Me too. And with that, we're wrapping up this season of Science Rehashed. 
We cannot thank our listeners enough for supporting us through three full seasons. I can't wait to see what fascinating discoveries we'll rehash next season. In the meantime, don't forget to continue sharing our episodes and keep up with us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Science Rehashed. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Lauren Granada and edited and mixed by Aaron Troutman. The cover art for this episode was created by our creative director, Emma Brandt. We'd also like to thank the whole team of Science Rehashed for making this episode possible.